It's December 9th, 2023. And so time keeps passing and looking forward to the winter retreat period. It's a very special time at Abayagiri. And the change of the seasons. It's a big community we have here. I was just visiting Pacific Hermitage. It's a small community there and just dropping off two of our monks there and bringing one back. And Ajahn Sudanto's been traveling, so normally there's only three monks there, but now there's two and yeah, just a very small monastery, very small community. And coming back to Abayagiri a couple days ago and just appreciating the bigger community here and just a really good feeling in the community right now. And then we had our day long or Anapanasati day today. So I think that turned out well enough. And I uh, thought I would talk a little bit about meditation tonight and just some ideas about meditation and what is meditation. And so the word meditation is actually we, it, the Buddha doesn't <clears throat> talk about stopping thought in the suttas. He does talk about the mind settling though. So for example, noble silence is considered when the vaji sankara, the speech sankara in the mind, the chattering in the mind goes quiet. So that's what we call noble silence. So, but then uh, it's quite interesting that the Buddha forbade the monks, it's, a, it's an offense for the monks to undertake a vow of complete silence, to not talk at all. So there was some bhikkhus spinning the vasa together in the time of the Buddha, and they made a vow of silence so they wouldn't speak to each other at all for the entire vasa. And this is called the mukhavata, it's a... Uh, practice of ascetics, the time of the Buddha, and since time immemorial, it's been something that's praised among ascetics and Brahmins to not speak at all. And you hear about this now, some uh, yogis, practitioners will take on the mukhavata, the no speaking practice. So uh, the Buddha was asking these monks how how are things going during the Vasa, during your retreat period? And they said, well, we took a vow of silence. We didn't speak to each other at all and thereby lived in silence. And the Buddha said, oh, that wasn't the real silence. That wasn't the silence praised by the Buddha. You were living in cow-like silence. And uh, so he says, uh, the real silence is the inner silence. It doesn't mean you don't speak on an external level, but when the, the mind is silent. And so the Buddha did praise speaking little, but not no speaking at all. So uh, he made that an offense to undertake a, a vow of complete silence. So when we, when we do meditation, we do use our thought in various ways. And so... Uh, if no thought was what we were aiming for, then no thought would be a factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. 
but that's not one of the factors. There is right thought, or what we translate as sometimes right intention, samasankapa, the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And that's thoughts of non-ill will, thoughts of non-harming, thoughts of renunciation. That's what's considered right thought in the Noble Eightfold Path or right intention. And so when we practice this thing we call meditation, it's we use our thought in a certain way. So we actually do have to think about what we're doing and we do have to want to make the mind peaceful or to want to create the conditions for the mind to settle. So we do need to put some desire in there, some wholesome desire, what we call chanda. Unwholesome desire, we tend to use the word tanha, and then the wholesome desire is chanda, although there are various types of chanda and it's not always wholesome, but we want dhamma chanda, which is the desire for dhamma. So we do have to have desire to practice and to get ourselves to practice. We have to have a confidence and a conviction that this is going to be beneficial for us. So when we meditate, we can think of the word meditation as we're considering something, we're contemplating something, we're contemplating a theme. So it doesn't just refer to putting the mind on an object and trying to have a laser focus and exclusion to everything else. But it means we consider, we contemplate, we investigate. So in order to understand what it is, then we can take things that are just ordinary for us because in a sense, we're actually meditating all the time. So I'm gonna give an example of a meditation on anger and I'll give an example of a meditation on craving. And these are meditations that we're doing all the time if the, if the mind is in those states. So if, if we think about something wrong somebody did, and so then we think about how wrong it was, how wrong they were to do that, how we need to tell them about it, and that what they did was, was actually really inappropriate. They didn't do it in the right way and actually uh, maybe I should avoid them, maybe I should have this particular conversation with them, telling them that they were wrong, and maybe, maybe I need to actually avoid them or ignore them, and uh, then thinking over and over again how, how wrong it was what this person did or that person did, and then, they, then we get, start to get irritated, and then we think more and more about how wrong this situation was, how wrong the person was, how wrong it was, what they did. And then before long, we give rise to anger. So we've done very, very successful meditation on anger because we've perfectly given rise to anger through all these contemplations that we were doing about how wrong someone was. So uh, that, that would be an example of a meditation on anger. And that's something most of us, I know I'm quite familiar with it. So I'm uh, quite adept at that type of meditation. And, or we might have a meditation on desire, so, or, or say craving. So say there's uh, an object of craving, something I want, and the mind will proliferate about it over and over again until, 
until the heart is almost sick with desire. And so that was quite a successful meditation on craving. So that's how to meditate. We can think about how to meditate by all the meditations we've already quote unquote succeeded at in, in that sense. And then we can flip it around and we can start to meditate on wholesome things. So if we want to meditate on something like metta, then it's, it's really the same technique as meditating on anger. We just, but we actually have to flip it around and use our thought to, uh, for example, metta for ourselves about how we need to spread goodwill to ourselves, why we need to wish ourselves well, why that would be something that's helpful. And we might think about our own successes in practice, about how we've kept virtue for such and such a period of time and how we may have done something, we may have helped people in the past and we have to actually convince ourselves why it's worth spreading goodwill to ourselves in a very genuine way. And then we can succeed at this idea of spreading metta, of goodwill towards ourselves. So if we're really able to have goodwill for ourselves and a sense of not being upset or angry with ourselves, then we need to contemplate and think over things, consider things in, in that way. Or if we want to have goodwill for somebody else, then we have to consider the good things they've done and not focus so much on the wrong things they may have done, their mistakes, their foibles, but we actually focus on the good aspects of what somebody did. And then we can give rise to a sense of appreciation a sense of gratitude, a sense of goodwill. But it's actually not that easy to do. If we want to do a meditation on renunciation, which is defined as the sense restraint or the relinquishment of, of sense desires, then we think about the drawbacks. We can think about the gratification in sense desires and we can also think about the drawbacks in pursuing sense pleasures of various kinds. And then if we do that successfully, then that can give rise to an intention of renunciation in the mind and the heart. Yeah. So that's uh, a little bit about how to meditate on these things. And if we wanna meditate on the breath, if we want to actually focus on the breath, we first need to start by having a desire to do it. We need to actually sit down and try to do it. And then we need to think about it Think about how do I do this? Okay, I need to, we need to tell ourselves to actually uh, focus on the breath, the sensation of the breath, come, uh, cool air coming in at the nostrils and the warm air coming out. And then we might want to add in Bhutto meditation with that. So we need to actually think about it and then tell ourselves that uh, can mentally recite Bhut with the in-breath, To with the out-breath. Then once we've started to do that and the mind is, isn't resisting it so much, then things can start to settle a bit. And if things start to settle, we might also still need to use our thought to say, well, okay, this is this is a good feeling, this is
pleasant. The mind is peaceful now. And we can uh, coax the mind along to stay with this and, and be present for the experience. I think it's, it's actually quite subtle if the thought actually stops. I, th I th think, at least for myself, uh, times that I've thought that thought has stopped, <laughs> I guess I thought that thought has stopped, uh, hasn't, it's actually, there's still, there's still like an undercurrent. There's still something happening there. So it hasn't really stopped. If the mind really stops, I think it's going to be quite a different experience, quite profound. So we just watch and we consider things. And it's kind of like the reading earlier today of Ajahn Chah talking about the old timers in Thailand discussing bringing the fish in in a net. And that if you, if you get two, you kind of, there's a big fish in the net and they're kind of pulling it in, hauling it in. And if the fish starts to get away, there might be this idea that we need to get it in faster. It's going to get away. But then when we pull it in too fast, we pull it in too frantically, then, then it does get away. It can break free of the net. So you just haul it in little by little and take your time with it. Gather in one side, gather in another side. Haul it in slowly. Uh, develop a sense of patience and endurance and gather it in slowly. The fish gets tired and it stops uh, stops flopping back and forth and then it can be pulled in. So Ajahn Chah talking about the mind being like that. There, there's actually a photo of Ajahn Chah giving that teaching. At, uh, he's talking about the hall of the fish and it's a photo of him with his fists out like this and People have seen that photo and wonder, what is he doing? And I remember asking Lung Barbasano about that photo, and he said, oh, that's when he was giving the teaching about hauling the fish in. He said, you have to do it really. He was actually kind of uh, showing how it's done. But if you just see the photo, you just see Adun Shah with his fists out like that. And don't really know what the context is. This is when he was giving that teaching on the hauling in the net. So... In a way, with meditation, it's like we're hauling the mind in, reining it in. And then we, we give it some room to wander. So say if we're doing the kayagata sati, the meditation on the body, there's various things we can do in that meditation depending on how we can allow our mind to wander within that meditation, within that framework. And then... Because we can let our mind wander a bit, then if it wants to wander, it can. If it wants to wander, it can think of the body as four elements, earth, water, fire, air. It can think of the body as just uh, parts put together, external and internal organs that are put together and that uh, arose at a certain point and will pass away, and are currently aging and will pass away at a certain point. So we can think of the body in, in terms of that. We can think of the body in terms of the feelings in the body, where there might be tension in the body, just the experience of having a body of heaviness. Uh, or we might just think uh, there is a body here 
to the extent that there is knowledge and awareness, as it says in the sutta. So the body has various feelings and it's in, it's in a state, it might be sick or it might be healthy, it might have this or that pain in it. So we can think about these things. And the reason we think about this, the reason we think about the body and consider it according to the Dhamma of the Buddha is to look into it and realize that because it's not lasting, because it's impermanent, because it arose and it's only persisting for a while and it passes away, how could we consider it to be something that belongs to me? How could we consider it to be me, mine, myself, if it just ages and passes away, doesn't follow our commands? So the Buddha has us logically working through this, considering this in our mind, using our thought in that way to consider consider the body. And this is very helpful for, you know, why would we want to do this? Why do we do these very ordinary contemplations? Why don't we do something more profound? We just think of this very ordinary body. And in the, uh, like in a few days, we plan to have a novice ordination. And one thing that's taught in the novice ordination since the time of the Buddha is the Mula Kamatana, the five, uh, meditation objects, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. And why would we just contemplate these very ordinary things? Why do we contemplate hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin? These, These body parts that are the visible constituents that make up a human being, those things that are visible on our, on our bodies. Why do we just contemplate those very, very ordinary things? It's because this is what the mind gets infatuated with, and then when we contemplate these things and look into their true nature, then the mind, the heart can start to cool down and uh, things can start to get better. The mind can be peaceful. The mind is usually stirred up and agitated by these things. In the Satipatthana, the fourth Satipatthana, There's all sorts of sets of dhammas, lists of teachings that the Buddha gave. And so all of these are fair game for allowing the mind to wander into these places. We can think about the Noble Eightfold Path. We can think about the five khandhas, the five constituents of body and mind. We can think of the Four Noble Truths. So the Buddha praised thinking about how the Four Noble Truths work. uh, What are they? pointing to, we think about our own experience in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And so we think about suffering and uh, I've been considering this link between suffering and the cause of suffering that we talk about dukkha and that there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness, there is suffering and there is a cause for it, which is tanha. But I've thought about how it's, it's a little bit misleading to think that tanha as a cause, because for my mind, when I think about craving as the cause of suffering, unwholesome craving as the cause of suffering, I would I would think that there's this there's craving that occurs, and then sometime later, then suffering happens as a result of that. But that's actually not the case. So I I, I think now more like craving is a prerequisite for suffering, and so. When the mind is in a state of craving, if we really look into it, we see that that is suffering here and now. 
So when the mind is in a state of wanting, that is suffering here and now. When the mind has a sense of that type of lack, that is suffering here and now. So the cause and the result are very linked together there in the present moment. You know, when there is, say, when there is anger, when there is something like uh, anger or irritation, you know, that, that is suffering here and now. So thinking of it like that can, can really help us to see the drawback of those types of unwholesome mental states and then the mind can start to flip over and become much more wholesome. Because when we really see that something is suffering, you know, Ajahn Chah would say this over and over again, Ajahn Sumedho would also say this, and you have to see the suffering. It's so important to see the suffering because if we see the suffering on a very deep level, if, we, if our heart actually sees the suffering, it can't keep creating the causes for it. So it has to pull out of suffering if it really sees the causes for it. So it won't, just like a, when we put our hand in a fire, we won't be able to will ourselves to, or maybe a very rare person could, but most people won't be able to will themselves to keep their hand in the fire, to pull the hand out immediately. The hand has its own wisdom. The hand knows that the fire is suffering. So when the mind knows that these unwholesome states are actually suffering, it will get out of that, that fire immediately it won't be able to stay in. So that's the wisdom aspect of the practice. But it comes through considering these things. Uh, the last time I had the opportunity, the really amazing opportunity to uh, pay respects to Lumpur Ban, that was one thing he told us was, or actually he didn't tell us, but he was talking to a group of about 50 lay people. And we were up, we had had the meal with him and we're sitting up on the asana uh, with him. And he said, uh, he actually said to realize Dhamma you have to think a lot and then he's kind of waited for a bit and there's a people are kind of feel, you know kind of not sure what to do he says yes you heard me correctly to realize Dhamma you have to think a lot but you have to think in terms of Dhamma so not just any thoughts. We think within those frameworks of the Satipatthana. So not to be afraid of thought and just knowing how to use our thought properly, use it as a very powerful tool. And then we can reflect and consider these things. At a certain point, we consider them according to Dhamma and then the the mind will start to settle. The mind won't be agitated, uh, won't be making a problem out of things, and there'll be a sense of no worries. There'll be that feeling that just everything's okay in the moment. Sometimes we actually do need to do that. We just need to use our thought just to tell ourselves don't worry, just everything's okay. Yeah. Everything's going to be, not going to be okay, because that's off in the future, but everything is okay right now. And, and we're, still, we're still breathing. We still have a good opportunity for practice. Yeah. 
and we do what we can. So sometimes we need to read inspiring teachings. We need to read the teachings of Ajahn Shah a lot. We need to read the suttas a lot. You know, we need to meditate and contemplate these things a lot. The, the faith, the, I won't use the word faith, but uh, conviction, the sadha. In Thai, we say luam sai, like the conviction, the confidence, the bright faith needs to be quite strong. We really need to be able to energize the mind, brighten the mind, encourage ourselves. This is so important. So the, the self-encouragement needs to be quite strong to be able to continue to think about all these things within the framework of the Satipatthana, the framework of the Dhamma. At a certain point, we will become convinced that each day, each day and night, we have to do whatever we can, that there's not much time. We have to do whatever we can to get to the core, get to the essence, and really see through these things. There's all sorts of pitfalls in the practice and all sorts of uh, cravings and irritations and desires that'll try to take us off the path. But in order to stay on the path um, as practitioners and especially as ordained practitioners, we do need to constantly be able to see things and encourage ourselves and inspire ourselves whether it's looking at the Dhammapada, the suttas, or, or just uh, like something like the Sutta Nipata, these uh, teachings of the Buddha, or the teachings of the great meditation masters, the Kruba Ajans, or their life stories. It's very important to see the difficulties they went through, and so that those of us who are ordained I can think of myself. Uh, at one point, I was uh, I was thinking about disrobing. This is uh, probably eight or nine years ago, and I was kind of considering, considering, oh, I could do this or that, and it would be good. And I was kind of in this mind of, you know, realistically thinking about it. Oh yeah, I've developed all these skills in the monastery, and I could, I could leave, and and it would be, it would be good, it would be good. And I thought about it for a while, and I thought it really would be, it really would be good. And then this uh, kind of the Dhamma came up, or a voice, I guess the voice of Dhamma came up. It was well-established enough that this other voice came up, and it was kind of like, yeah, yeah, it, yes, that's right, it would be good. But the Dhamma isn't about getting something good. It's so much more than that. It's so much better than that. It's get, just getting something good is just ordinary. This is uh, pretty cool, actually, pretty awesome. Um, so that was uh, that kind of stayed with me for a while. Just those those kind of uh, reflections when we do these meditations a lot. When we then those things come up to uh, remind us to protect us. So these are just a few thoughts. I won't go on too long. It's been a been kind of a long day already, and be nice to uh, get up to our dwelling places and have a bit of a rest. But uh, just hope that everyone can learn how to contemplate these things and meditate according to the Satipatthana, and to uh, cultivate in a way that each day gets better and better. And I'll leave it there.
this evening.